Hello, you're listening to a spoiler-filled film conversation. Hooray! Play the podcast for me. Play it. Play play the podcast for me. No. <laughs> oh dear. I feel like I should open with some poetry, but I don't actually know any poetry. I, I have some on cats and love. You have poetry on cats and love? Oh, because of... Charles Bukowski. Bukowski. Do you want to read some yeah. poetry, Abby? Appropriate stalker-based poetry. Quick, go. Cats or love? Love? Okay. Preferably wrong love. This is getting dangerously close to being cultured. I care for you, darling. I love you. The only reason I fucked L is because you fucked Z, and then I fucked R, and you fucked N, and because you fucked N, I had to fuck Y, but I think of you constantly. I feel you here in my belly like a baby. Love, I call it. No matter what happens, I call it love. So you fucked C, and then before I could move again, you fucked W. So then I had to fuck D. But I want you to know that I love you. I think of you constantly. I don't think I've ever loved anybody like I love you. Bow wow. Bow wow wow. Bow wow. Bow wow wow. Oh, fuck me. <laughs> Some lovely poetry to start off the podcast, because, you know, homage to the film. But, uh... You're not listening to some kind of poetry podcast. This is a film podcast. This is S fucking F fucking C fucking H. Spoiler film film conversation. And that was the, uh, what was that called, Abby? That poem? Blue Moon. Oh, Blue Moon. How I Adore You by Charles Bukowski. And yeah. (laughs) So (laughs) uh, this week, hello, I'm Richard. With me for the podcast is Abby. Hello. Uh, the words of Charles Bukowski. He's, he's a pot, potty. I was going to say potty mouth, but that's a poem. So he's got a pen like a sailor. Is that? A he's phrase? a pot, pot, potty pen. Potty pen. Potty pen. <laughs> and um, also here for the podcast is Anthony. Hello. Whose fault it is we got sidetracked with poetry because he selected the film this week. <laughs> sure. So, I... Sure, Rich. It was totally up to me that you made Abby read out some poetry. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, the film this week is Play Misty for me, which I think has to be said like that. Um, Anthony, you picked it, so do you want to give the details of Play Misty for me? I will, Richard. Play Misty for me <laughs> is uh, uh, a film, obviously. Uh, it was released in 1971. It is a psychological thriller and is the directorial debut of everyone's favourite grizzled action star, Clint Eastwood. Um, I looked it up, and apparently he's made 37 films mm. in his life. I didn't even realise he was directing this far back. But yeah, he's had a lot of years uh, under his belt, so, you know. Indeed. Well, anyway, uh, in, uh, here he plays uh, a cool jazz radio DJ from California who has to deal with an obsessive and psychotic female fan who keeps inserting herself in his life. Uh, the film also stars Jessica Walter, Donna Mills, John Larch, Jack King, and Donald Siegel, and a few others. But we'll just go with that for now. Hmm. Yeah, it's a film I've heard of, um, but not seen before. Now, anyway, I have seen it uh, for the podcast, but um, it's a weird. It's a weird title. It's sort of. Once you understand the context, 
uh, it makes sense. But before, in the trailer, for example, I was like, there's some sort of psychological horror film where there's like this key phrase that seems to be uh, being used and it's going to be have horrific meaning or something or um and then in the in seeing what happens in the film you go oh it's, it's like it's not like some kind of brainwashing phrase it's just it, it contextually makes sense so i was confused by the title and i'd never seen it but i'd heard things about it i didn't know the premise which I think helps. So, if you don't want to know the premise, this is not the fucking podcast for you. Watch it, and come back to us, and then see if your thoughts line up with ours. Um, but anyway, Anthony, had you seen this before? Why did you suggest it? I had seen it before a long time ago. I think late at night, one of those type of movies. Um, I didn't realise at the time that it was directed by Clint Eastwood, or that it was his first, or he was doing anything but starring in it. And I, I remember being confused by the title myself because I just thought it was a Western. I know Clint Eastwood in something called Play Misty for me and it sounds like, I don't know, he's asking someone to play on the saloon piano. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but that's what my thought, original thoughts were. And then I saw it and then it's like, okay, fair enough. Um, but we have touched on Clint Eastwood as director and actor uh, before, but that film was The Rookie. Mm. Um, and I felt like we should give him a chance to redeem himself <laughs> because that was such utter horse shit. Yeah, we tend to dodge the big uh, successes of people's careers because that's not very... It's the thing, we don't like the high highs and we don't like the low lows. We love the middle ground here in Spoilerfield. So we only really go into the ones that are like... Not questionable, because that would imply they're bad, but... The, the lesser beaten track, isn't it? So it's not like Clint Eastwood's shit at acting and shit at directing. He's got some great fucking films. Some of my probably my favourite film is The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. And then some of Clint Eastwood's directorial uh, works, aside from this, are you know at least heralded as uh, fantastic films. Uh, so I mean, had you have you quite seen a lot of stuff Clint Eastwood's been in or and or directed? I have. Uh, I've come to find out um since doing a bit of research for the podcast and it's like i said like he's made 37 films since the 70s and like that's a lot of films and then just you know by pure chance you would have seen some of them not realizing they were directed by clint eastwood um i think later on he's been uh champion doesn't he like it's like um stuff like i wanted to say gran turismo but that's the video game gran torino um, and, like, what's that boxing one? I was going to say, uh, the Cinderella Man or something. Like, that's not it. That is a boxing film, but it's not one it's by not him. That one. Um, what's the one? Million Dollar Baby. That's it, yeah. Oh, fucking, that's a shit name for a film as well. Um, but, you know, he's th- he's had lots of credentials. Like, he's proven himself now as a director and someone who is a bit strange politically. But, um,. I think, you know, it's, it, his first films aren't, like, the things people talk about, I don't think. Not so much, anyway. No, you don't... You, He's much more recognisable as, like, the grizzled action star um, that I mentioned before. Slightly racist um, old man who's good, really, <laughs> type roles. But, but he's, you know, like, he's just as prolific a director and producer as well. Um, and, you know, fair play to him. So I, I thought, you know, we'd, we'd, he's had most of his acclaim um, 
in more recent years, like I think since like Unforgiven in the early nineties, um, and then um, stuff like Mystic River and Million Dollar Baby in the two thousands. So I thought, you know, let's go all the way back to the beginning and see what he was like out of the starting blocks. A, a young kid taking over the reins. Well, youngish. He's still sort of. Yes. He's <laughs> middle aged ish. He's approaching over the hill, but he's got a big hill to go, so, you know, this is very much, you know, early on in his career, if you span his career anyway. Mm. Um, and I, I was expecting him to have started in the in the 80s perhaps but no like i was surprised it goes all the way back to 71 well he's worked with some great directors so i mean he's he's been on mm. set with people who, who are able to craft some great cinema so yeah we'll cut him some slack this time because <laughs> this is mm. first well i don't know we won't we'll just review it like we would any i never tend to give anyone the benefit of the doubt when reviewing them. So, uh, fuck it, I'll just give my uncut opinion this time, like always. Abby, uh, play Misty for me. Did it it mean anything to you? Absolutely nothing. Do you know the song, Misty? It is a song, isn't it? Yes. It is a famous song. Um, No, I don't think I even knew the song. Well, they don't really play it in the film, so I still don't know it. They do, but like not... um, not a great amount, but yeah, it's uh, it's an instrumental, so it's just sort of there um, without being yeah. noticed to some extent. Did what were you expecting from this? Well, I can't say I've ever really seen a Clint Eastwood film where he actually enjoys himself and has fun. When does he? Oh, I mean, all those ones where he's with us, an ape. <laughs> he he mm. must do. What are they called? Uh, which way? Any which way but loose, or any yeah, which way but some other, I some have... other thing. I've deliberately avoided. I can't believe I've avoided it all. I can't believe I haven't got round to it. Because why is he with an orangutan in two films? A road movie, isn't it? Like, oh god, I can't even. Get gripped now, Rich. Not talking about it today. No, we're not. We're not. So you. So I was expecting him to not have a nice time. Well, it's a sort of horror thriller, isn't it? Mm. Mm. The, the writing was on the wall for it going, getting out of hand. Which is uh, weird, because the start of the film sets it up like, okay, we like pan in on like a fancy house in California from above the sea somewhere. And uh, we see Clint Eastwood hanging out on a bit of decking or whatever. And then he hops in his little sports car after like looking at a painting of himself. And... Um, it's Just the to... first of two gratuitously long music bits. And oh, God. It's so upbeat yeah. and jolly. It's just Clint Eastwood driving his fancy old car with lovely like, music playing. Yeah, it was a lot more reminiscent of some sort of like quirky romantic comedy at the beginning. And like, knowing, like, I watched the trailer so I knew what was coming, and I was like, this doesn't feel right at all. No. <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying we have to open with a sense of dread, but jolly kind of rock and roll music playing and Clint Eastwood having a lovely old time having a drive. What the fuck are we doing? <laughs> it does seem to go on forever, <laughs> unfortunately. There was one other scene that I felt like, sorry, why are we indulging in this again? And um, at one point after the 
I mean, it's obviously going to spoil things to talk about it, but after the kind of dramatic events, because we won't talk about those until we're, you know, we're ready, but the person involved has, has gone away, and then we get like a long bit of time spent filming at a jazz festival with just a few of the main characters walking around, listening to the music, and it's just like, where the fuck are we at this jazz festival, guys? <laughs> there was no point to that. I feel like it was just... Like Clint Eastwood first film, a bit high on power, was just like, let's film at the jazz festival because I really want to go to the jazz festival. It, sounds... so... it always feels like like in an action film where they do a little bit too much helicopter stuff because you know they want it to get value out of having a helicopter for the day. Yeah. Oh, which they also did in this film. <laughs> yeah, but I don't mind a bit of that. He went under budget, which was the, like ahead of schedule and under budget, so. Like thumbs up from the producers for doing that. Mm. Um, it's you know, in terms of uh, production, you know, it's not got it's other than swanky homes, which a lot of the people presumably making it could have owned. Um, there's not that many. It's not a very complicated uh, film. You just got a few locations, and you know, it's very minimal. Really, I can't think of anything too elaborate. So maybe the jazz festival was an excuse to spend a bit more money and <laughs> like, oh, let's, let's just have some jazz shit in here and. People just just wander around and get get drinks and <laughs> fucking do nothing while there's no there's no dramatic tension because you're like well that okay the person who could be a threat is behind bars or in a medical facility um, I guess something could happen of consequence no no we just spent that time at the festival getting a sense of it okay and now also there's lots of there's like a long sequence of establishing that Clint Eastwood and his uh, girlfriend are having a nice time. Making love naked oh in the wilderness. God. Oh my! Oh yeah. <laughs> in the dirt. Just so disgusting. Upset. It's not even that. It was like I'm not against nudity and sex in films, but it was just so fucking long. I don't know, but like, okay, when pe- people obviously we don't all live sheltered lives. We know people have sex outside occasionally, but. When people go fucking dogging or whatever you want to call it, they don't lie down butt naked in the soil and and stuff, getting fuck knows what crawling up your ass or biting you. People stand up and do it like fucking dogs with their hiking shoes on and their pants pulled down. They don't fucking make fucking beautiful naked snow angels in the dirt. Do you know what I mean? Like they, no, but they didn't do that. But they did like just completely make love in the grass and weeds. And you go, no, this is another film. That manages to make sex boring. How have you done that? It is one of the most hilarious or erotic things that exists. <laughs> depending and you manage to miss both. Depending on who <laughs> you're doing it with. <laughs> oh, I just it, and it was just like okay, right, they had a nice time, okay, and then then what? And they do get back to it. it isn't you know they do have their pleasant time disturbed eventually, but it is just like. We get it. They lived happily, not quite forever after, but for a bit. Let's really establish that. Um, but yeah, before all the all that business, all the indulgences, right back at the start, uh, they set up the fact that Clint Eastwood is a... I mean, it's, what's this, the 70s? So he has mm. a, a ton of shit shirts and horrible clothes <laughs> to wear. Um, all vile in their own way. And he has... Um, Clint Eastwood has maximum swooshy hair, so he's it's not it's not long hair, but it's as thick as medium gets, and it's the sort of hair that sort of you comb and then it 
dries and puffs up and gets blown about in the car. So I, I found it very distracting to watch Clint Eastwood in this film because I'm just staring at the various directions his hair goes. It's going, <laughs> oh my God, you're like a die job away from a Yu-Gi-Oh character here. What's going on? <laughs> Did you guys find his hair distractingly large and wavy? Uh, there were moments where you kind of like to take a step back and you go like, that's some big hair, Clint. Um, Do you want to get some gel no, on it? <laughs> not really. I mean, it kind of, you know, he was supposed to be like a jazzy, cool California DJ, so... Yeah, maybe a bit more of a beatnik or something, I don't know. <sighs> okay, it's fine. The other thing, it's a minor quibble, right? But um, it did catch me and Abby by surprise when we were watching it. So we established this guy lives in a pretty nice pad in California. He's kind of weird shit. You know, he's got the obligatory hipster cool guy stuff like statues and fucking penny farthings and like posters of rhinos. And, you know, it's just a weird cool pad. And then after a while you go, wait, he's just in his bedroom. Did he just step out into a rockery or something? What the fuck? He's got like a pond and a garden in his front house. The front door opens onto like a little rock pool that you could step with stepping stones that leads to his bedroom. What the fuck house is this? <laughs> I didn't notice for a good while. It was a good, like, two-thirds of the way into the film. Yeah. And <laughs> like, hold on, this must be in his house. Why are they in a lake? <laughs> What's going on? Yeah, I think he gets up in, like, the night when there's a disturbance or something to investigate, and you go, how are you in the garden? What the Hell, you just it is odd because I think maybe you need to show if you've got a like fair enough, if you've got a pond in your house or whatever, at least establish it before we try and make sense of the apartment midway. Like, when it's, it's like a distracting feature in a way, so yeah. I don't know. Uh, cool, but weird, yeah, it's, it's really cool. I like, I like the idea, but it's hmm. <laughs> a time and place to suddenly realize that, and it's not midway through the tension, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and he also the, the back, but we see the back of his sort of bed, the sort of behind the headboard or whatever, and it looks like it's fucking yellow paint samples. But I think that's just the cool design. Is like a bit patchy and weird. So I did find, like, okay, well, is he just he's a sort of between p- choosing a new wall color? Oh no, no, he's not. It's just weird. So I found him and his weird house to be a bit distracting. But, uh, yeah, I, I just, I'm just a bit jealous. I can't feel for someone, oh, are they going to be murdered or stalked? Who gives a shit their lovely house and their awesome job playing cool records on the radio? <laughs> like, bastards. That wasn't, that wasn't when I stopped rooting for him. It was when they had the weird, the horrible 1970s sex rationale of, I'm seeing someone, but they're not here. So I guess it's fine that I have sex with someone else. And she, like, he said that, and she inferred that she was with someone else and then had sex with him anyway, and I was like, well, no, see, now you're both bastards. Not interested. Well, they're, pl- they're playing on the fact that, I mean, essentially Clint Eastwood ends up getting stalked by a woman, and I, they're playing on the fact that he's a kind of Lothario and, you know, sleeps with different women across the, all the time and doesn't get into serious relationships. But it's at a stage in his life where he is looking to pursue, like there's one woman he particularly, is. he's had an on and off relationship with a woman called Toby who's this blonde woman with a fucking weird 70s mullet so mm-hmm. a hairdressery mullet it's just very stealthy and odd I mean she's just a dip, dipsy artist isn't she who fucking oh she has no blowtorch safety 
Oh god. Nanny. Oh my god. <laughs> a, she yeah. doesn't wear goggles or gloves. Um, and then B, what was your thing? What was the main thing at B? She left it lit on the table, not covered at all, and then fucked off outside. Yeah, just because your your bloke has turned up doesn't mean you leave the but like it's at least turn it off. Like you don't have to do anything other than that. But leaving a lit like like blowtorch and potentially going out for the day, I mean, it's health and safety gone mad. No, it's not. It's the opposite of that. It's health and safety not used at all. I don't know that annoyed me to fuck. I mean, the fact that they were going to just leave it as well. I mean, that's a directorial problem. Surely you write into the scene or have it corrected that she turns it off. What? It's so easy to turn it off. Just turn it off, for fuck's sake. <laughs> you can stop making your weird copper statues or whatever. And knock... Oh, anyway, yeah. But she's just um, a kind of cool, kind of flaky lady, isn't she? This Toby woman. Did anyone think anything of her other than the fact that she has a revolving door of roommates? Uh, I liked her enough. Um, I mean, other than, like, uh, Clint Eastwood and Jessica Walter, there's not that much focus given on everyone else. And I feel like she she is there mainly to serve as the alternative for Clint Eastwood. It's like, this is what he'd be losing if the other woman succeeds. So, um, there was an element of that. But, yeah, like, the month they focused on her annoying roommates and, like, her, you know, interchanging roommate situation. I don't know. I, I felt that was fairly signposted as to, like, the ending, personally. Yeah, I mean, it did catch me. It took me... The penny dropped before it happened, but it, I didn't instantly think, oh, that that's what that'll be. Um, we'll, we'll get to that. But, like, so, so you know, other than... This suggestion that Clint Eastwood and this talk... Oh, well, David, who Clint Eastwood is playing. Uh, other than they've had a, some kind of... Either a breakup or they've had some time apart and she's not... In, and she's kind of been avoiding him. And uh, no one, none of her friends have been telling uh, him about what, where she's living now. So there's a sense that she's not that interested, but she slowly comes round to seeing him again. So there's a sort of, oh, suddenly he's after a proper relationship after all this sort of casual sex he's happy to have whenever he feels like it. Um, so I, Oh, there's... yeah, and and then there was that, like, weird um, bit with her, like, gay neighbour, which she was only there for, like, half a scene. Oh, gay, they, gay, they, gay. Then he, like, didn't appear ever again. It's like, if there's any mood of fodder ever in a film, there it was. Or the some, gay neighbour. Some gay book. <laughs> Yeah, it was like he was slightly disapproving of this guy, but didn't turn up again, so it didn't matter. Mm. Yeah, and um, I think the the way he finds out about the fact that his girlfriend or ex-girlfriend is back in town is essentially she sees a woman with a bewling jumper on. Like this, <laughs> this attractive woman in like a horrible green and patterned <laughs> jumper weird shapes on. She sees her and you're like oh look at him, he's such a fucking hound dog, he's after like a fucking bloodhound and he catches up with her and then he's like oh sorry, it's not you. And I thought this was some kind of, and she's like oh hi, oh sorry, no it's not. I thought this was him like trying to hit on her again or this, Mm. like I thought he was after this woman and it just turned out that he thought it was uh, Toby and that she knew about, knew that he was David because she's uh, Toby's roommate and then he finds out that oh shit, my the woman I'm interested in is 
living at home again, even though everyone tells me she's not. So, you know, he he finds out about her again and is is um, exploring, continue picking up their relationship. But uh, you know, in the meanwhile, he's got DJing to do, and uh, a woman in his life who he doesn't really want to be there, doesn't, isn't it? That's the crux. The main focus is on. Um, yeah. This, the relationship he keeps mismanaging at every turn. Yeah, I mean, it's it's the the film hinges entirely on the relatability of the situation. So David is just you know a guy trying to get on with his life, and he's got a fan slash uh, hookup that like, just a, someone he has casual sex with. You know, clear suggests that that's what it's going to be, and then she's clingy and staying around and forcing herself on into his life. And how cringy it is, and how desperately she's endlessly trying to stick around and be involved with him. And then it's like, you know, it's how credible at each moment is it that it continues. Um, so that you know, that could make or break it. We, we obviously discussed some of the things that we thought were good or bad about it. But uh, one of the ways that I thought was the first thing I thought was weird is the way that they hook up the first time. So like, David goes to this bar with this and he's friendly with like um and they pretend to play a game which involves corks and wine bottle tops or something oh that's irritating mm-hmm. do you see a move that was illegal or something abby well no it's because i thought it was going to be a legitimate game i was quite excited it's like oh i'm gonna learn a game i love learning a game and then you realize oh it's complete shit <laughs> <laughs> well that was the point wasn't it is that their little uh, wingman scam was Clint Eastwood would sit at one end of the bar, there's an attractive woman at the other end of the bar, and then him and the barman have this little, oh, let's get out the little corks and things that are clearly not a board game, <laughs> and pretend to play some kind of checkers-like board game with these bottle tops. And I, instantly I was like, that's that's not a game. Are you bullshitting them? <laughs> and they go, oh, they're meant to be bullshitting. And it, like, someone's meant to see that and then get, oh, yeah, what are you playing? Oh, we're playing old corky spoony. <laughs> Jobbo, we're playing old uh, hop jobs, <laughs> and then they 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 go on with the like. Ah, oh, he doesn't see it. He doesn't see the move, and it's like, I fucking you know, he, he kings his fucking bottle top or whatever. And it's just like complete bullshit game to trap women into having a conversation with him, and then I guess from there, you know, you, you know, oh, just put these put the game away and let's talk and buy drinks and have sex and stuff. He sleeps with a fan. He doesn't. He doesn't know she's a fan initially, isn't it? She's playing it like she's not, right? But he does before he sleeps with her. Ah, but only just. So maybe it's the point of no return at that point. All the hard work's been done. You may as well, isn't it? Mm. You just mm. haven't had any fans mm. to sleep with, Abby. That's all. You haven't had men or women swooning for you and being like, "Oh, I love your, I love your work." Love the way you, you do those things you do. Oh. You would, you hussy. <laughs> I think at least the first, like the first interaction, is you know viable enough. It's like there's no real red flags. No, no, no. Quite yet. Yeah, they like she's fairly cool about it, and like they hook up, and it's like your typical sort of come back to my place, drinks, you know. You know, it's it, there's nothing, there's no problem, as you say, no red flags, um, and they establish that it's a casual thing, and it's just a one night stand type job, 
and you know, obviously, her. Um, what does she do first to get back? Like, it's the first thing is like. She either... The first thing is she just kind of turns up with like groceries to his house. That's right, and then, um, but yeah, I think it's Clint Eastwood's jazz uh, radio station friend colleague who is calling in and seeing if he wants to go out. And Clint Eastwood's like, "Oh, I'll just, just knock up something here." He doesn't sound like that, but <laughs> he's gonna he's gonna stay in and keep his head down and do some work and you know not go out. And... I like him and his buddy keep having conversations in two different rooms by just like talking through the glass or shouting through an open door. Whatever it is. Yeah, it feels natural, doesn't it? Unlike the guy's hat. Like this, uh, he's a black guy and he has this fucking awful little fishing hat, but it's got horrible fucking wallpaper pattern on it. Ugh. <laughs> he wears it more than once and you go, oh mate, it's not working. Good job you're on the radio. Anyway, my, uh, my prejudice say... aside. Yeah, I don't want to throw him under the bus too much because it was the 1970s. There was a lot of Horrible stuff going around. Oh, oh yeah, big time. <laughs> I just thought his, you know, he's just his notable feature was he has a bad hat and a positive attitude. He's kind of let's have fun kind of guy, and he he basically, uh, you know, lets so this, you know, this stalker lady Evelyn, uh, she's clearly a stalker. Turns up with groceries and stuff. It's sort of has come along as if we're dating now and I'm, I've come to make some food for you and all this. I've imposed myself upon you. And because the other radio guy is there, she, he's sort of like, oh yeah, go into the kitchen, help yourself. Uh, like, this fucking prick's not coming out with me, so he's obviously going to put up with you. So he sort of throws the spanner in the works there by making sure that Clint has to deal with it. Or David, or whatever. And then so he he uh, he pieces out and goes and that leaves Clint to have a lovely dinner. With his new girlfriend, who he didn't want, but you know it's not that bad. It's just overstepping boundaries and not understanding common parlance and courtesy. What do you guys make of this uh, tense date? Uh, I don't know. For me, this is, was the start of um, Kenny Stood. Uh, uh, Dave is the character name. Dave Gal- Galver. Uh, I don't know. There was I. I, I kind of guess that they'd kind of set up that he was a, like a Lothario and was, uh, you know, trying to kind of like ease back on his lifestyle. Um, and I suppose his attitude towards her in this scene is because he's trying to be nice rather than just saying, you know, bugger off. It was a one night stand kind of thing. But ah, mm. uh, I don't know. There's It starts to push the limits of any sensible person would not be putting up with this. Yeah. <laughs> and they would... And there's a certain point where he would have asked for help and he just doesn't. And even when people offer to help, he's like, no, oh, fuck off. Dude. <laughs> I, I'm willing to let it pass because, A, it's the first sign that, oh, she's cuckoo. It's, and it's not the kind mm. of, oh, she's crazy in an obvious way. It's, oh, dear... Like, you think this is going to be more than it is. And it could... It's like, you know, it's clearly the act of an insane person. But it's still... Well, just so... Like, 
if it was three or four dates down the line and you established we're dating, it would be like a lovely thing to do in a way. I mean, I, mm. assuming you can just use someone's kitchen you've never been in before is mental. Like that's just <laughs> that doesn't make sense. You can't. It's a. I didn't realize the kitchen was a sacred ground, but you can't just turn up with stuff and help yourself and be like, I, I don't like anyone who's confident in someone else's kitchen, unless they're mm. like a, a fucking you know a chef. But even then, they need to tell you. They need to know where things are and what you've got and what your tastes are. So it's crazy, but it's sort of normal. Like, oh, you know, weird girlfriend crazy. Not anything else. And so him being nice about it and kind of... He gives her a talking to and, like, you know, tries to shut her down. But fundamentally, she just talks over him a lot. And then he eventually just sort of gives in. And I think they even end up sleeping with each other at the end of the night, don't they? It kind of, it kind of works in it to, as far as she's concerned. And you go, oh mate, don't sleep there again. <laughs> you know, even if you like feel bad that she's bought all this food, you can eat the food and then say goodnight and then say, uh, you know. Maybe it's because we're so used to Clint Eastwood being such a, a bit more of a active kind of aggressive uh, force. Um, so when he's like actually quite passive and being talked over, it's maybe just. Subconsciously, it just feels wrong as to an audience. What do you want? You, know like, I mean? you want him to backhand <laughs> her and then put a cigarette out on her? Like, what do you want? <laughs> it's perfectly acceptable no, to go along with I'm whatever she's saying. She say. like, maybe that's just in the back of my mind. Maybe that's a subconscious reason why I'm finding it really odd. It's like the first time I can, like, in that era of him playing against type, which is, you know, he's. Not a softy, but he's not the most dominant person. He's Mm. not in charge of the situation anymore, which he is in a lot of other other things. In fact, I think actually when he's really young in some of the TV show stuff he does, he's like just a young guy. He's not, you know, commanding, not a commanding presence or an uncertain mystery. He so in this, it's the it's a proper film where he, you know, not a pushover, but his machismo doesn't work on her. He can't sort of force her to just piss off and leave him alone because she's so difficult socially, you know? Um, but yeah, what's the, what's the real breaking point that comes, I guess? <sighs> is it... Um, is the next one when she turns up at the bar? Or outside the bar? Is that, is that the one where she's not wearing anything under a coat? I think that's a bit uh, Yeah, but I think it's connected. I think it's like later on the same day. I think there's like phone calls about dates, isn't it? And he's like, I, oh, he fobs her off with, oh yeah, so we'll go on a date. Uh, I'll call you about it. Uh, well, she's like, we should go on a date sometime or whatever. And it's, he's like, I'll call you about it. And he doesn't call, he's in work or whatever. And so she phones up and it's all like, oh, um, I've made, you know, all this nice food. Have you forgotten? And he's like, I don't think I forgot. I thought we didn't arrange anything formally, and so he, he, on a technicality, they did. She, he, she did suggest they should go on a date, and he agreed to it under the understanding that he'd call about it. And he hasn't called, and she's got. She's assumed the date's happening, uh, you know. And so I think it's that. Uh, now see here. So he has to go round and basically, at that point, he has to break up with her. He goes round with the intention of look. Now we could have a conversation. This is going too fast or you're dumped, or whatever. Like, he has to try and get to the point where he lets her down initially gently, but as she as she, she sort of endlessly bombards him with, like, she's bought him, like, these shit white shoes for some reason. Mm. 
so she doesn't let him get out his words and just you know forces him to receive gifts and be sort of uh, what's the word like just just she's overbearing isn't she mm. and I think yeah. that and I think she, he does end up he does end up in a temper doesn't it they kind of fall out and I think she I don't know says he was shit in bed and a dickhead and you know it, it's a horrible breakup that eventually does happen because you can't just be nice to someone. <laughs> while they're trying to get rid of you, per se. I'm sure it happens occasionally. But she kind of, you know, does cause an argument and gets uh, broken up with. And then I think she just phones up later on and apologises and said she didn't mean it. And he's like, oh, fuck, I, this is like we're broken up. Why are you calling to apologise? Like, I didn't, <laughs> I felt bad, but like, it was fine because that's what I wanted <laughs> to break up. I think that's what happened, and then she's like, "I'm naked, hello." <laughs> I forgot about like her weird outburst moments as well. She has a couple of those where she just like instantly turns really nasty to someone, and then instantly turns back to her like her calming kind of radio sexy voice. Yeah, she got she got good eyes. Um, it's the actor from Arrested Development and Archer, isn't yes. it? Yes. That's her. I, di- I didn't click for a long time. Uh, but yeah, it's, her, it's her Jessica Walters. Yeah, she's good. Like she's, she brings um, she brings a kind of sternness to her later performances. And in this, uh, in her in her youth, it's a psychotic... The, out- the outbursts are kind of interesting because her eyes uh, are so intense and her, obviously she's, you know, she's shouting or being... Insane. So I think she she does well to be this desperate, sad, pathetic person, uh, absorbing like uh, sympathy and energy and and and, and uh, emotions. She kind of sucks up emotions and makes you feel sorry for her, even though she's being crazy. It makes herself the victim so often that when she's all pissed off with someone or angry or has these, it's it's her, isn't it? The bitch in your fucking pictures and she's doing this and so she goes off the rails and it's kind of intense and then she's back to, it dulls it back down again and it's uh it's good stuff i think it's good good it's oh a, yeah it's, it's a like good performance to- totally sinister like to, uh, 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 the best easily the best thing about the film is her performance and how uneasy it just she just keeps you all the way through and we i mean we mostly follow Clint Eastwood there's one point where i think she we follow the camera follows her for a bit, just her in the scene, and it's when she sort of is on her own and sort of switches into like um, like she's not just living in each of her emotions; she's clearly pre-planning everything. So she's just mm. already likes Clint Eastwood from listening to him on the radio, radio or, or David or whatever, and so she obviously plans this stuff. She's manipulating him. It's not like an innocent sort of I'm a overbearing person. This is like calculated. I'm going to copy your key while you're out of the house and I'm going to like take your car away so you can't leave and she's you know quietly manipulating the situation so that he can't help but be in a relationship with her in it. Mm. What um yeah Abby you were saying one the one of the annoying bits for you was the moment where she reveals herself under a court is it? I cuz he should have left outside. Thank you. <laughs> So what? There's a naked woman outside your house. It's the 70s. They're everywhere. You're a radio DJ, and your reputation will be ruined if, like, the press and the police get hold of it, or like some flashes outside your house. You might get embroiled in a scandal. Yeah, and I did mention before they did kind of 
sort of set up the, the idea that he's trying to clean up his act a little. So, like, having her seen outside, like, naked his house might, you know, alert the wrong attention. It's going uh, to seem you know, like... It's going to seem like... very much in the background, so, you know, it's a bit... His, his actions still seem a bit odd. You can't really leave a naked woman on the street. So... <laughs> That's what you say. <laughs> you can't actually use mental. You, you can't... Yeah, so you... Well, Abby, you'd go in the house for the police? What would you do? I'm trying to think if it's gone as far as police or not by then. <laughs> well, remember, you phone up the 70s police, they basically say, what have the blacks done again? <laughs> and yeah. then they come around with truncheons and you go, no, 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 it's just a naked woman. And they go, what's the problem, mate? Just get her in the house and bang her, isn't it? No, it hasn't really turned yet. Like, if she starts banging on the doors and the windows or whatever, then I'd call the police. But I'd just, like, close the door. Ignore her, hope she goes away. But then, yeah, because because essentially the scene before this is the um, her calling up from outside the bar and then confronting him and then not leaving his car. So at this point, it really should be like uh, I'm not dealing with this. Goodbye. Oh, that's right. So she makes a call from a phone box because she knows where he hangs out and sees his car, and then you know, to some extent. To some extent, sensibly, he says, "Oh, t- the barman, like, oh, don't, I'm not here." And then she's like, "Oh, you're not there, are you?" And basically, yeah, he just left. And it's like, he d- he does leave shortly enough after that to be like, "Oh, well, he said I left, and I just went to the toilet. Then I came out." It's perfectly pl- like it wasn't like he wasn't caught that much in a lie, but she does behave like a maniac and take the car keys and prance around and like hold him hostage briefly. It is like, "Oh, you're a crazy bitch," you know. So he he should be cautious, but I do think you phone the police. Say you phone the police, and this woman's being all naked. And she could say, "Oh, he raped me," or like, do you know what I mean? It's investigation time. She could say anything if she's out there, upset and potentially naked. And then you know your relationships, your job, or in jail. Like I could see him being like, "Shit, if I leave her out there, not only is she nude and vulnerable, and you know, going to cause attention to herself, but who knows what she's capable of? Maybe if I have her in the house, I can you know get somewhere with her." Mm. Does he have sex with her again then, or is this the like you know? Yeah, I think so. Fucked up, mate. <laughs> Seen a nude, isn't it? Ooh, the kettle's boiling. Uh, at what point she comes back? Um, and he's still sort of unable. He sort of still breaks up with her, and then in the, having no more outs and in, in no more little wordplay or like scenarios where she can be. Manipulative. She basically says, "Okay, I accept it," and like, "Can I just wash and go home?" And then she fucking slits her wrists in it in the bathroom. Yeah, uh, there's uh, there's one bit before that. Like you mentioned, she kind of takes his uh, keys and gets gets them cut, and then takes the car. Um, which um, I don't think it makes him late, but he's he needs to get to see a a woman who uh, wants to produce a show with him. Yeah, and then uh, obviously she follows him, mistakes the uh, old woman for uh, like a date, I suppose, and then goes crazy on him. On her. Does that happen before this? Yeah, yeah. It was it was uh, it was just before this because then she goes back and like tears up his apartment and tries to kill his um, female lady. Yeah, so you're right. We shouldn't have really glossed over the fact that he, you know, I think she's out 
getting groceries or she's out doing her thing, copying her key of the house and uh, sabotaging his life but just annoying him. And yeah, so it, it, he does have a legitimate business meeting about a promotion or further work down the line or something. And it's with this middle-aged uh, lady, isn't it? And he just has it like, he puts on a, a really weird suit. <laughs> like, <laughs> is it like purple or something? They're all weird suits. Yeah, but he, he's just, I think it's because he's wearing a tie as well and everything, he just looks a bit more weird. But he, he goes to meet this, he has like a business meeting at the, like some fucking fish grill bar place, I don't know, a restaurant. And yeah, she takes this to be, oh, you're out with some fancy woman while I'm just here in the house or whatever. And she goes crazy, comes down, finds him and like shouts all kinds of weird shit at this woman who's clearly not on a date with him. But Ooh. she's she's cuckoo, so you know she's and then Clint Eastwood strong arms her back into a taxi and forces the taxi driver to drive off with a woman screaming and clawing at him. <laughs> I would not be taking that fare anywhere. <laughs> yeah. Maybe you... he slipped him like a, a big waddle of cash, so they couldn't see. A big waddle. <laughs> a waddle of cash. I don't know, I think uh, maybe to make the situation go away if he drives away. But then this woman could just garrot the fucking taxi driver or jump out or what's to stop her getting out if she's literally clawing at him? And then, of course, oh no, while you were strong-arming that woman who was... I I would have sat there in the restaurant being like, excuse me, can you get the security? I don't know who this woman is, she's just a crazy fan. You get the security of the restaurant or or the waiters or someone to throw her out. And you apologise profusely. You don't leave the woman you're trying to have a job interview with. I mean, it's pretty fucking lame of her to piss off. But then it was crazy. Yeah. What would you have done, Abby? Would you have uh, dealt with this woman the same way? I would have attempted to apologise to my guest before I tried to tell her to fuck off. But she was having quite the diatribe, to be fair. It was all kinds of uh, names being called insinuations being made. Uh, yeah, it is just... Uh, I wouldn't have let it get this far. You pick up a I... steak knife and you jam it into her hand <laughs> and you throw her off the fucking roof of the restaurant, <laughs> or the, the side of the restaurant into the sea. I wouldn't have slept with a fan. I just wouldn't have done that and then I wouldn't have his problems. But it's a sexy fan, Abby, who you, you're also kind of like, oh no... Oh, they're naked under their coat, Abby. Oh, you can't resist. Oh, you're like a nun, are you, Abby? You're just not having it. No, I just want to sleep with a fucking fan. Well, <laughs> don't burn all your bridges. Um, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, but that's a, it's an important scene because it is like, my God, this woman is literally going to torpedo my life. This is full-blown mental stalker territory. You're a threat and a problem and an issue, and this isn't going to be. I can just um, keep dumping you or not sleeping with you. This is like a problem. How far do I let this get? You know, isn't it? It's kind of wishful thinking to think you could just pop her in a taxi and solve your problems. But, um, yeah, she's back and in the house and it does end in her... Not end, it continues. With her doing the a shallow vein slitting. Like, so she, she commits... Um, she attempts suicide in the bathroom, but at the point... Like in it, like she slits her wrists, but shallow, as if like she wants to survive. So that in a, it's like a desperate attempt, as far as I'm concerned, to stay in his life. If I do this, then maybe I'm more vulnerable again, and it's it's harder for him to sort of throw me out or something. 
he has to mm. then spend time getting an ambulance or something. And then yeah, plus she's she's had um, success like emotionally manipulating him already. So there's, I suppose there's no real reason this wouldn't work in her mind. It's a big gamble, but it, it actually pays off more than it should because one of the problems is, in order to keep it on the down low, he gets like a friend doctor to come and, and like you know bandage her up and evaluate the situation. And it's, you know, call an ambulance, get her to a hospital and out of your life, not get her bandaged up and staying with you. That's a mistake, right? Oh yeah, <laughs> that was that was a total mistake. And not just because of how things unfold, but just it, no way would you would you want her staying with you after this, isn't it? I think it's, he makes mistake after mistake after mistake. When he starts giving the police a hard time, I just I just gave up on him. Yeah, this was the first thing I was like, no, like definitely no at this point. And all the other times you're like, well, misjudgment, can't you know, socially in, in backed into a corner sympathy there's all kinds of reasons that you could go along with what he's doing but when you're like yeah she's gonna stay with me and i'm gonna let her heal up and hopefully she can just once she's back on her feet you know it's always because really, it's really shocking i suppose if you find someone who's tried to kill themselves the shock of it would make your sympathy come mm. back and you genuinely you would feel bad you wouldn't want her to kill herself but mm. uh, i suppose yeah especially as you know you're involved in that like he could probably be thinking that it's his fault that she did it yeah, so guilt would definitely yeah. be on the table, but is yeah. So you know, we we uh, I think in one scene we do establish his uh, housekeeper comes around. She's like this uh, kind of nice woman <laughs> who just tidies up his pond and and bed and house and rubbish. And uh, we've established her, but I think it's no. Actually, I, I just I just you know, she she's set up, but then later on she's attacked by uh, Evelyn, isn't it? I can't remember how she goes from... Uh, I think she feels hard done by, because she's been left, you know, to heal up in the bed. And Basically, uh, Clint Eastwood's there comforting her, and she goes to sleep on him, and that stops a date he was planning with Toby. So Toby's feeling a bit hard done by, because Clint Eastwood is just trapped un- <laughs> underneath this um, sleeping woman who's crazy. But he's kind of trying to, you know, he wants to see it out. He knows he can probably fix... Toby's. She, if he explains stuff to her, she'll understand. So he kind of goes, "I'm not going to fuck up. I'm not going to leave her now. She'll just come and like stab Toby in the eye or something if I go." So he tries to sort of, you know, quietly get her, you know, feeling better enough to get rid of her so she's not dangerous or something, isn't it? He mm. has that really good staring into space moment when he's just sort of stuck <laughs> overnight. <laughs> Hello, darkness, my old friend. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's good. Yeah, from the transitions, really good. From night, from day to night, or whatever, or, or vice versa. And yeah, so I, I like that. Like we just see his like, oh my god, what? Like you do feel for him, and you feel you're in his shoes, and then you're like, oh my god, what do you do with this madness? So yeah, that was good. What's what's next on the thing? How do we get to the vicious attack that really, uh, you know? Um, well, when he goes to try to explain to um, to uh, Tubby, yeah, what happened, and then he like kind of like confesses everything, and then we see her kind of like lurking in the background, watching them. Oh yeah, from like afar. Yeah. Oh, this is sorry, Anthony. We, we were 
we could deal with this, but there was the thing that bugged me. And earlier on in the in the film, oh no, is this the is this the conversation, Abby, where they teleport around having a conversation? Oh, oh no, that was much much earlier. Yeah, that was that was oh, that also annoyed me. Mid sentence, they cut from one location to another, suggesting that they had walked miles and miles and miles. <laughs> but suspending sentences and not speaking to each other for a good 20 minutes at a time. And this was... is one of the worst examples I've seen. Of this. Yeah. I mean, you know, it happens a lot in movies, but <laughs> it's proper like, what? We're at the beach now. Like, have we just been silent and you've been brooding on saying that for half an hour? Yeah, you can't have mid-sentence one location cut to another one, and it's literally continuation of the same conversation, same sentence. And I, like, you know, I've seen it where people go up like a flight of stairs and they get to the top and they're continuing the conversation because we're not going to film and walk every fucking step. And you might not notice, but this was the worst. It was like a montage of locations where they teleport round, chatting and talking and just, you know, dumping exposition, but with with one co- like it wasn't. Let's finish that conversation and have another one that reveals more information. It was one long run-on like sentence after another that would just be in other places. And they went miles. And it wasn't even interesting. Who's tell? Yeah. But you know he has uh, this. That was earlier, but it was worth bringing up because it was insane. Um, yeah. So back to the. He was having convers. He was explaining everything to Toby. Is that right? Yeah. We don't see that. I think he just says something like, I can't lie anymore, and then... We, it's impli- they... they do the correct editing thing of implying the... Com- we know what is said. Hmm. Cut to them finishing that conversation. And she... Yeah, and uh, Evelyn has been, like, uh, you know, watching them. And crushes, like, a twig in her hand. Classic. <laughs> uh, well, and then... So she smashes up his house. She tears up all the cool hipster stuff, uh, kind of makes it a mess and breaks things and is in the middle of going crazy with a knife on something in the cupboard or something, is it? Yeah, uh, and then yeah. she gets found by the cleaner. Oh, okay. When we first see this cleaner, she seems like a kind of uh, tough cookie. She, I feel like, oh, if she met Evelyn, she'd put her in a place and see it. Like, this feels like the sort of person that's thrown out shitty girlfriends in the past, or put them, like, you know, maybe made them eggs and let them down, let them in on the fact that, yeah, it was just a one night thing. It's not going to happen again. See you later. Here's a cab. Like, she seems like she could have dealt with it, and then she's a complete victim who gets slashed to fuck by this mad stalker lady. It was pretty brutal that scene. I was, I was actually surprisingly, surprisingly taken by it, like, it's like, oh, God. I didn't expect it to escalate to this at that point in the film, because mm, I felt like... Yeah. I, I, okay, so she could have attacked someone, or she could have even... If she ruined the house, it would be, like, one thing. And then to try and stay in his relationship despite that would be, like, continuing the narrative. But then because she attacks this woman, and she survives, and it's not like she hides the body or anything, um, so she survives and, of course, hospital, she's, uh, you know, mutilated to some extent or at least in a pretty critical condition. So, but she's taken away, and the police actually arrest Evelyn because she stays there. She's, like, crazy, not like a, you know, calculated murderer at this point. So she's d- done this frenzy, and she basically gets taken to have medical help and is arrested fundamentally. I guess she's insane rather than in jail, so... She spends an, 
a jazz festival and a montage of location changes in like an undetermined amount of time in an institute from this point on. Uh, but Clint Eastwood then just deals with the police in a really shitty way. It was kind of weird because it felt like the guy playing the police officer was doing an impersonation of Clint Eastwood as a police officer when you have Clint Eastwood as like a very fairly kind of like passive poetry reading jazz DJ. <laughs> it did it did but, seem odd, but yeah. I, but I did like the chemistry between them. It was very odd, like this like this cop would drink coffee and he was sort of, he was sort of a regular fan of the radio show that uh David did. And so he was had that going on but he also he was trying to be helpful but he was kind of suspicious of things but not like he would his questioning would go so far and then david would would kind of be cagey and unhelpful about things and you go wait no explain everything like he there's one point where i think oh what's the deal with the slashes on her wrist and he's like oh i don't know anything about that no explain she or she's a stalker fan she did that and i you know was giving giving more time of day to her because she, you know, had tried to commit suicide. So uh, she clearly is in love with me and is mad. Like it, it was so sortable once the police were there. And she's attacked someone, smashed up the place. It's really obvious what's gone on. And it was like it was this air of suspicion. And then, like you know, David wasn't being helpful enough and a bit like, get out of my house. I've had enough of this. Like he didn't mm. want to deal with the cops. Yeah, I thought because of that they were setting up some kind of um, a trap for him where he'd be suspected of being the criminal one or he gets caught out or something. Like, like she sets him up. Yeah, like they like somehow Evelyn would manipulate events to seem like he was a murderer or a maniac. Mm. But it didn't go that yeah, way. Yeah, it didn't. Abby, I believe you were particularly annoyed by Clint Eastwood's character being so cagey and difficult with the police. Because he's in a position of absolute righteousness. A woman came into his house, stabbed up his cleaner. It, all he has to do is explain that he had a one-night stand with this woman. It got out of hand. He tried to break it off with her. She's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, especially as because this has been his, his total out now. And it's like, why aren't you taking it? Why aren't you taking the total out of this? Mm. And because the housekeeper's alive, she can testify that, yeah, she attacked me. It wasn't him. She wasn't even here. You've got a witness. If he was the only credible source, because the knife-wielding maniac is, like, lying or catatonic or, you know, he could easily be a suspect if the woman was dead, but she's alive, so... She's not. It's like a total non-issue that should be easily resolved, and it and it's weird because in terms of tension, the film pauses and goes. So yeah, they had a respite from this, and their lives got back on track, and they try to move on, and uh, she was just gone from the film for a bit. Cue jazz festivals and montages of walks in the beach and making love in the woods. So there's a whole bit of like, so they were fine for a while, and then bitch is uh, back. Yeah, apparently, obviously. He didn't change the locks on his house. What a dickhead. Total dickhead. Did he know Did he know about the locks? I guess he Yes, did. he was told to change the locks. He literally told, yeah. And he didn't. I'd, just... I'd move house. Uh, if, also... someone, if like someone tore up my house, I know it's got a cool fucking garden in the middle. 
And but you know, it's just, it's tra- traumatizing. She knows where I live. I'd need a new address that she didn't know about. I'd need, I'd need Toby to stop dicking around with her roommate and move out and to move somewhere else. Everyone should be relocating and uh, trying to get completely clean and away from this, isn't it? Yeah, because if nothing else, someone was brutally attacked in his home. I wouldn't be able to stay there. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's this moment of dourness, I guess, in the montages. There's nothing is too heavily uh, explained. It's just uh, time passes. And then um, he gets another phone call. No, does he get attacked in bed, or is it a phone call he gets next? He gets the phone call first. Um, she, like she's phoning up to like say sorry apparently and that she's moving to Hawaii I think it was um, and then she like uh, like reads a poem which seems innocuous at first but then it's, later on turns out to be a clue it's basically her saying I, it's about a poem about a woman who loves only one person and it can only ever be that person it's basically I'm a stalker the poem like you know isn't it and uh, yeah, it's 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 sort of supposed to be a look. I've moved on, and Clint Eastwood's like, well, yeah, okay, <laughs> or mm, like that'd be the appropriate thing to do. But no, he he does kind of go, <laughs> yeah, okay. I guess he doesn't want her to become crazy again and kill him. Like she needs to find out if she's gonna come after him or something. So he's like, okay, yeah, rehab, great. I'm gonna move on. You should move on. Let's all fucking forget about it. I haven't changed my locks. I forgot about that. Um, so it, it's. And it, like this, this poem is is like as you say a clue, um, and he's into poems, so it should be more obvious for him what she's trying to say. But it's it, she, he's not expecting to be like getting clues like she's the the fucking Riddler or something. So I cut him some slack there, and yeah, she, you know, he's like willing to play Misty for her, which she was phoning in previously to the, she was the caller that always asked to have this song Misty played on his show, and so that came up a few times throughout the film, and now he's willing to play it again, even though she's not listening or something. Hmm. And it's a kind of, oh, maybe you'll leave me alone and have, you know, got better in a medical institute. Here's hoping. And then he has a... It's, this is a bit that confused me. He's in bed, and he seems to have a dream where she's above him, stabbing into his pillow... And he wakes up and like has a start and like looks around and it's like it hasn't happened. And then there is something stabbed into his pillow and she has been there, so it wasn't a dream. And it's like, wait, but you portrayed it like he woke up from it. Like if she stabs at you, you wake up and you see her. She can't, you can't be stabbed at, fall asleep again, and then wake up and realize it wasn't a dream. That doesn't make sense. I see what you're saying, but I, su- I it kind of added to the delirium of the moment, I suppose. So what did happen then? That he was half asleep and was interpreting images weirdly. Images of things that were actually happening, where she comes in and stabs him and runs away somewhere. Hmm. Did this make sense for you, Abby? Did you understand it? Well, it was just a stylistic thing. I would pick up on that too much. So it could have been a lucid dream moment that becomes, oh shit, it was real. <clears throat> Yeah, it's when like it's when she gets the scissors out later that it really gets fucking serious. I don't know. I, d- I thought it was just a mistake to bluff you into it was a dream. No, it wasn't. Yes, it was. It was. It was real. No, no, that's it. it. It's real. No, it's a dream. No, it was real. That was just confusing. So, oh, whatever. So, 
he wakes up in a panic because she's been there with a before whatever. But then she's obviously let herself in with the spare key that she copied, um, and hides above like a bit of the door or something, in the garage. What? Uh, how do we get? Like, does he? What does he do then? I can't remember. It's. It turns out that she's used a, a false name, which is to do with the poem, to get in as Toby's new housemate. But we, so we don't see her again. In, like he wakes up scared, and then is like realizes she's been there. But can't. Yeah, she's not there. Then he, yeah, then he just like calls the cops, mm. and the the guy comes back. Oh, that's right. Yeah, a bit more of a bit more of that. Like, well, help me, but also <laughs> don't help me too much. Go away. He agrees. <laughs> the cop agrees to go and see Toby, and gets you know stabbed in the heart for his trouble. Yeah, they, I think we've just, well, they established that Toby's had a new roommate because they're always changing, and that she's got some innocuous name. And then what? The poem is connected to the name of the uh, the person who's Toby's new roommate. Is it? The name is somehow the, like the poet or something. Is it? Or yeah, the name of the poem was who like Annabelle Annabelle Lee. Ah, I see, um, yeah. So he like kind of puts that, those two together then. And the cops like so that poem. Do you remember any of it? And he's like in the radio station talking to this cop, and he's like. Look, fuck off, no. What do you think I am? Some kind of poet expert? Oh, wait. I do love poetry, but I can't, <laughs> remember, I can't remember it. Uh, he, do, he does clue, you know, yeah, like you say, uh, he's worried about Toby because she's called again or something at the radio. Like she calls the radio station or something, isn't it? I know, he's, wor- he's worried, uh, rightly so. I think, yeah, I think he's trying to kind of um, lure her out by being in the radio station. Hmm. Is that right? I don't. I don't know about. I don't know if he's luring, but he's he's in a situation where he can't be with Toby and protect her. So the cop. Is oh, um, they're waiting for her to call so they can track the. Um, That's right. They got the they call. Got, they got the call. So they know that she calls the radio station and asks for this song or is crazy and might call him again. And yeah, so they want to tap the phone and make sure she stays on long enough. Blah blah blah. But she's just been. She's become the roommate of his girlfriend. So. I mean, I don't know how that happens, but it did happen. I mean, this woman should be famous. Like, she murdered your boyfriend's housekeeper and is in the news. He's like a famous person that's in the news and shit. You'd think her picture or something would have come up, or... Do you know what I mean? Like, she just turns up back to not listen to some other person. But then it, my quote of the film does come up, where it just goes to Toby, God, you're dumb. <laughs> and it was just like, Yes, that is the most emotionally truthful thing that's happened in this entire film, is you calling that woman <laughs> stupid. You let your hairdresser give you a mullet, you're putting up with Clint Eastwood's weird fucking I can sleep around but I also fancy you business. You let people come and go from your house, well, you know, you're very loose with your who you rent to. You're a dummy, you're a big idiot. And you left your blowtorch on, stupid bitch. <laughs> <laughs> um, bloody artists. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so the cops going round to call in on her, uh, check things are okay, and just sort of make sure. I, I never understood that. I'll call round to check you're alright. It's like, well, that's not all night, is it? So that, that's just a small window to see they're okay. As soon as you're gone again, they could still be in danger. You got to stay there. But you know, it, it, it doesn't matter in the end because he goes and um, gets shanked with a massive pair of scissors. Poor guy. I felt bad because he was literally just dead. He didn't even get some <laughs> last words. Yeah. Just, bye. 
also you're a cop with a flashlight and you what, you didn't fucking a woman in front of you gets the jump on you with the massive pair of scissors you know it should have been like some kind of block disarm judo chop or at least a, a, you know this is a, it's a reasonably normal sized woman you should have been able to defend yourself in some way you know whatever it's, he's American he should have just filled her full of uh, bullets right that should have been the thing I don't know. She she jumps out of nowhere. I get it. Like, but this is oh the, in the build up. It's she um she has that line with that uh, with Toby, like you say, Abby. But she basically is re- she revealed to the audience ma- like making a some fucking horrible sounding drink, and um, she basically comes into the room with uh, Toby and is like, oh my god, it's the fucking it's Evelyn. She's the new roommate. Oh my god, and so. They have a weird conversation about the painting of uh, David that's, that she's done. Talk about how he has colder eyes than that. Because, um, you know, she thinks he's a dick, even though she loves him. Um, but yeah, she basically calls her a fucking vapid idiot, ties her up, and then tries to cut her hair so that she looks beautiful, so that he... Was there some line about when I like, fucking send him to hell with you or something? You look nice. <laughs> like, I don't know. But she's cut, she's cutting her, her hair while she's tied up, which I thought was kind of super creepy and awesome. She's a very menacing horror character in many ways. She's very reminiscent of something like Psycho. Hmm. Let's see. I'm sure there's one that's called, not Carrie. Um, but what's the one doing Misery? Oh, Misery, the film Misery. Yeah, what's what's that character's name now? Oh, I don't Annie. Know. Something. Okay. Yeah, this is. This is there's, def- there's definitely shades of misery to this film. I would say. Like it, it, it that it does put me in mind of that mm. movie. I think I like I like the concept of this more than I like the execution. A lot of the time, I was quite bored by everything. I like this is more like when she's cutting the girl's hair. It is like, oh my god, that you could like poke her eye out with the scissors, or like you're her hostage, and it's kind of nice of you to leave her alone, and not like fucking leave her beheaded in the bath and then wait for him to come back. Do you know what I mean? Like at this point, she's gone fully cuckoo. I don't think she's going to attempt to get with him so much as just kill him for, you know, not being she's in love at with her. The... Purge the fixation stage. Yeah, who knows? Like, his crazy loopy business. She's become a psychopath, and she wants to kill him now. And she's killed this cop, possibly thinking it would be him. Although she could probably tell it's not him. But then she doesn't want that guy to stop things either. Or find out that she's got a tied-up woman in the house and all this. Although she, I mean... Although, no. So she's got her hostage, she's killed a guy, and then David comes in past the cop with a scissors in his chest um, I, for a minute I thought he was going to retrieve the scissors and fight her off with him like oh no you've, mm. incri- you've incriminated yourself by touching the murder weapon and he didn't do that mm. that would have been a different having a sword fight with a, with a pair of scissors would have been a bit insane I still I still at this point I still thought that's where this was going to go like he was he was going to come and find uh, like his girlfriend dead or like she would get she would get killed in the in the in the fight that's going to happen, and then he'd kill um, Evelyn as well, and there'd be two bodies, and then he'd be implicated somehow, and then that would be like her final kind of like revenge. But uh, no, it's more simple than that. Clint, Clint Eastwood, yeah, pretty, more, pretty straightforward. Clint Eastwood gets attacked and slashed, but then punches his problems out oh. of a window and off of a cliff. 
it was such a wonderful moment. Like I just had, I just had a burst of joy and laughed when that happened. <laughs> uh, so good. It's probably the most Clint Eastwoody thing I've ever seen. It's it, just him solving his problems by punching them out a window down a cliff. It was like a fucking. <laughs> it was like a video game fight where it's just like a dorkin just fucking lamps her through a fucking window down a cliff, and we see her like fall into the sea like this dummy, and it's just like, oh my god, that's so good. Like it's so <laughs> it's insane, and then also like you know get some double glazing for fuck's sake. Like oh my god, I mean she'd been brutally slashing at him and attacking him, so he got a bit injured. So you would fight. Violently against her. I'm not saying like, oh, she's a woman, don't strike her. I'm saying it was fucking Mortal Kombat fatality style shit. I loved it. It was great. It was. Uh, yeah. it's, it's both cathartic from a, yeah, they defeated the scary lady who's been a maniac, but also <laughs> amazing stunt. <laughs> like, yeah. you know. Oh, so mad. It's the sort of thing where a different film would be twisted and interesting and kind of, I don't know, you think. He finds uh, his girlfriend either dead or he finds Evelyn pausing to look like in her claws with like a mm. wig on or something and trying to look like her and then she'd kill him. Or You expect some kind of dark twist where someone's dead and Clint Eastwood has to live with the consequences in some way. You could see anything happening. Not, yeah, out the window, <laughs> smash! <laughs> <laughs> like insane. Huh. Uh, what, what Almost redeemed the whole movie. <laughs> <laughs> a nice touch is he's left the radio. He's panicked and left the radio station where he realizes, like she's, he finds the poem and makes the connection and goes, "Oh shit, that's her rubit or whatever." Um, and he puts on a different show, a previous show, because um, you, your girlfriend's in danger. You make sure there's a track playing at the radio station. You don't want to lose your job by having dead air when there's a murderer afoot. Um, Pots on like a, a, a previous show where, at the point where he's in the house and is playing in the house uh, on the radio, it comes to the point where her request has come up again. So she mm-hmm. gets her phone call come in, and, and then so Misty's playing as she's presumably dead in the ocean, <laughs> and he's like, licking his wounds and like, untying his girlfriend. And They do have know. that really cool, cool. Um aerial shot where you see her like her dead body kind of like on the rocks and in the water and then it's and then it zooms out all the way back up to the the top of the cliff and uh, above i mean i I like all good horror thrillers do you want to set up a sequel like where she (laughs) she punches out a window that she like would have cut to her on the beach climbing out the sea all injured and covered in seaweed and like set up her as a returning like an unkillable Jason Voorhees type person. And it, <laughs> I don't know if we want play Misty for me again. <laughs> play, play, replay Misty for me. <laughs> I, I, I think you know there is a world where I'd have her climbing up a beach covered in wounds. <laughs> Maybe all of her wounds are covered in starfish so she'd bleed out. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> like she's just some hideous fucking sea monster. <laughs> Come back for revenge. Murdering a DJs until she finds the one she hates most. Oh dear! But no, it's a happy, happy bracket, happy ending. Unless you're a housekeeper or a policeman, I guess for them they've been traumatized. Think twice about going on another date. You can, we'd never look at that woman at the end of the bar right again. 
He'd never sign. He'd be like signing autographs, like fucking stay. Oh, I love you. Do you? Fucking stay away. <laughs> but yeah, you know that was play misty for me, right? Is there anything else we need to talk about or mention or any notes we've skipped over? An argument could be made that that the theme of this is be afraid of women who want more than a one night stand. There's elements of misogyny to this, but you know it's tapered with sympathetic behaviour as well. Or you know it's not Clint Eastwood isn't getting punished for being a prick; he's getting punished for being attractive to someone and trying to just casually sleep with people. Like he, you know, his only sin really is to be a bit, you know, uncommitted. There's nothing; he doesn't do anything personally wrong at any point. Maybe liking jazz is a bit much. No, I don't have any more notes on on the film. I just wanted to bring up the idea that this is Clint Eastwood's first film, so you know he's he's obviously been on film and TV sets, and he's been working his way up to this moment uh, of his first film. And then this is what he chooses. And I'm just wondering if that kind of to you guys would that kind of give you a clue to his um, his kind of psyche, is a kind of personality, because what he chooses, his first thing that he chooses is to act in the main role as a totally off-type character for him, who, there's a heavy jazz influence going on, and poetry, um, and it's about um, someone famous uh, who's, like, who's got, like, a crazy fan coming after them, so I'm just wondering if you think it's informed by his own kind of life. You've got to think a little bit, haven't you? I, 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 think, think... I don't know that much about him to I... say, but it could do, yeah. It's, other... I'm just, it's just because at this point, you know, he's he is like the kind of gritty action man. Uh, I'm pretty sure all he's done has been westerns or police detective or army person. So, like, the the first chance he gets is to play a kind of, like, poetry-reading jazz DJ. I think what he might be doing is trying to prove himself. Not only as a director, mm. it's like, I want to do something I believe in. It's an interesting project. I certainly uh, don't think it was... A, I think it was a good script worth doing. I think there's problems, and there's a few rookie errors in terms of uh, how the film the is. Errors. Yeah, like, just errors, like, filmic faux pas. Uh, but, mm. but mostly it's shot perfectly acceptably and he performs reasonably in it. There's nothing too sh- shocking I, about it. I think um, I think you mentioned uh, before the podcast started that uh, Steve McQueen was uh, in talks to be the main, uh, the main character. And every time you, you get someone uh, who's an actor who becomes a director, they always say, like, I don't, you know, I really don't want to be in it. Because then I'm doing two jobs, kind of thing. Yeah. Um, which Clint Eastwood, to be fair, has made, you know, an art form of uh, directing and acting in the same film. Um, but I think at this point, it's it being his first film, and I think he may have been forced into doing the lead role somewhat. Um, I think his acting suffers slightly. Um, because he's trying... I'm guessing his attention in, is on the, the whole directing thing. He's wearing two hats, while uh, against type yeah. isn't, isn't wearing any actual cowboy hats. Um, yeah. Then 
but then, like I said before, I don't know how much of that is also just me subconsciously resisting his Clint Eastwood persona, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I think it's a mission statement. It says, look, I can do different things. I'm more diverse. Uh, this is still a, you know, he's playing a sympathetic arsehole. He often, when he's directing himself, is someone you go, you're a dickhead, really. You shouldn't be the sympathetic lead. And sometimes it's about turning you, like he starts off as a curmudgeon or a prick or so. He's some kind of difficult person who's too Republican or too old and sort of stuck in his ways or whatever it is Clint likes playing difficult people who you become you start to like he always you end, always end up sympathizing with him in some way mm. and you kind of go well do we have to always sympathize with you Clint even though your characters can be quite rotten in you know the the people he's playing you know are mm. difficult so I think it's, it's the start of that isn't it because David isn't that likable you feel sorry for him and you sympathize but he isn't the best guy ever being victimized. Um, so I think it's it's a, the it's the start of that him directing himself in those types of roles. He's not like mm. a cranky old man, but he's you know he's difficult to love. Uh, I think it's, it's it's saying I like I I'm willing to do stories that are about you know interesting female villains. Like it's you know it's not too machismo because there's a lot of emphasis on women but they're also it's also demonizing women not women on it it's clearly clear that this is a rogue insane person this isn't all women are like this or that all fans are like this so i think it's just he wants to be interesting and he wants to prove himself he doesn't want to, he's not taking it easy and just going well it's okay i'm doing another uh, anti-hero lonely guy saves the day kind of story he's trying something different so i i, I appreciate that mm. and i apparently steve mcqueen turned the role down because essentially the woman was the more interesting role and steve mcqueen i guess is sexist and can't be up staged by anyone and mm. <laughs> just would, wouldn't i think steve mcqueen's would have worked in a way like i could see that character working you know whether steve mcqueen's a dickhead in real life on screen he's good and i think it's the sort of role that would have suited him but uh, so, and then that would have resolved the problem of is Clint Eastwood doing too much, which is starring and directing. Mm. Uh, but I, I, I don't know. I think it was the, it was Clint Eastwood not taking the easy route. It was him trying to prove some stuff, and it obviously mm, no, paid off because yeah. he because he kept doing films, didn't he? So yeah, like it's certainly nowhere near perfect. Um, still finding his feet directorially wise. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, he certainly has an eye for framing and setting up a shot. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and I think he's he's really good at working with the actors. Really good at the performance that he wants. Um, yeah, the two main ones were like him and uh, what's the face? Jessica Walters. Her, even it... though, even though, like, kind of the, you know, there's only about a handful more characters, but they're all very memorable in their in their own little way. Yeah, the the little like yeah, that's true. I I think Toby is the least interesting, but she's a, she is not. She's just a, a damsel in distress at sometimes. Mm. Uh, yeah, but like Jessica Walters is very very good and compelling and a, a good psychopath, a good crazy person. It's it's an iconic role for her, um, and I I think it it's not as you know it's not as good as the sum of its parts. Or it's sort of it's one of those films where. In principle, I like it, but I don't actually like the execution. I didn't find it, mm. I find it a little dull, but 
I found it frustrating because I felt like it was a good story. But, yeah, I don't think he had quite a grasp of tone and uh, pace at this point. And yeah. he slightly overindulges on the jazz. Sure. <laughs> sure. I think it, it, it's one of the few times I'd say you could probably do a remake of it. Uh, you could even update it and take a different slant. Uh, I know that other films have come along and done sort of social mm. media related stalking. Like, what's that one with Aubrey Fema Bob? And she's like a Instagram stalker. But I saw that and that was pretty good. And a similar vein where someone follows a celebrity until they sort of uh, becomes out of hand. But so I could see this being remade with a pretty much, you know, same thing, like a radio personality being, um, or whatever. Even you could do it like a YouTube celebrity gets mm. stalked, or it doesn't really matter what you update. But I could see this being, you know, if 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 done properly, could be a really great uh, thriller. But then it would always be well, the original was this, but it was Clint Eastwood's debut, yeah. so it would get compared. So, and uh, I think especially as now this film is seems a little bit dated. I'm sure at the time it would have been quite edgy. Um, the the kind of cinematography, the kind of gritty, it's slightly grittier, a bit more washed out. Uh, but now it just kind of made, dates it slightly. So yeah, a remake would probably work. But that's not that's not to take away from the good points of the film. No. You know, this is a a solid first attempt. Like, yeah, it's it's a mixed bag, and a lot of it uh, had potential and is good. But um, yeah, it didn't didn't quite. Uh, knock out of the park. I know, Abby, you had a tough time with it uh, in terms of being bored and also finding it uh, slightly unbelievable at times. No, not unbelievable. Just that I hate people. I am liking people less and less as time goes on. Jesus. And doesn't help. <laughs> I didn't ask for your goth manifesto. Mm-hmm. You hate people? What the hell do you mean in relation to the film? Like, he made awful choices. She was a terrible person. It was just like, oh, this is this is horrible. I suppose you don't you don't sympathise that much with him. You do sympathise because he's going through. Wor- he's getting treated worse than he behaves. He doesn't behave that badly. He's just not likable, per se. So, who, who am I supposed to care about? It could be a thing, and also character motivation decisions are stupid. I don't know why you said I hate people. You like loads of people in different films and, <laughs> and some in real life, but you know, you would sound like you're just in a no, bad, bad mood. They were trying to portray relatively normal people up until you know she went mental, and it was just, it was when it's honest, it was when it really soured for me when they had the the 1970s sex rationale. And they were just like, oh, it's fine that we sleep together, even though we're technically with other people. It's like, it's not. It's just not. Well, I think he wasn't going out with Toby at that point in Venice. That's not what he said, though, is it? Uh, he was definitely he was very uh, loose and casual and, well, whatever. The You know, at the end of the day, though, you didn't fall in love with this film. No. Would you say it has potential, or would you say I just there's nothing I would want to see again in any form? There's things about it that were done well, but it's just not the kind of film that 
appealed to me. Like, I could easily make a list of, oh, well, this, this, and this, and this was done well. But it's just, uh, they aren't enough to make me want to see it again. Sure. Well, if we're trying to think of metaphors, I would say, uh, on the basis of it being a film about playing records and stuff for jazz, it's like a jazz record. Some jazz songs are really cool, and they work. And there's bits of them you like even if you don't like the whole thing. And so you're like, oh, I'll put that record on. But you can't sit through it all happily, because it's quite challenging. Well, not, it's not that it's challenging. It's problematic, isn't it, this film? So there's parts where you're like, oh, this bit of jazz, this bit, the incongruous notes, the kind of indulgent bits. There's there's bits that seem out of place and wrong that aren't working for me, and then there's bits that, oh, that's really good. Or this is So it's like a long jazz, free-flowing bit, in it, like just it's just a jazz record where there's there's peaks and troughs where I like it, and then there's bits where I'm like I'm getting bored now. So it's like you don't usually listen to jazz. At least you don't put on a record and listen to it and go, yeah, that song. Like a pop song, you put on and you listen to it, you think about the lyrics or the, the melodies or whatever you like about it. You enjoy the whole song, the whole three and a half minutes. But this is like you know eleven minutes of free jazz, and you're like, oh, fucking all right. You don't want to every not every part of it works. So for me, that's what it's like. It's, um, it's a matter of taste, isn't it? Like there's there's problems that other people might not have issues with, but for me, there's just parts of the track where I'm like, I'm skipping on now. Different film, please. You know. Hmm. It's a dusty old record that needs updating. Get a fucking downloaded version for fuck's sake. Mm. No, it could do with updating, but like, you know, that's not the biggest sin, is it? It's just it got problems. Anthony, yourself, you got any thoughts? I was kind of going towards the jazz thing myself. Um but you pulled the rug out from under me. Um son of a bitch. Now you can <laughs> slash at my portrait um, to make yourself yourself feel better if you like. <laughs> Didn't know you had a painting of me. I have several, Richard. Several, I'm, all my... with big stab marks. <laughs> well, the, the, um, luckily the Dorian Gray portrait thing doesn't apply. I think I am the withered painting that is... There's a really pristine painting of me that doesn't age, and I just get more tired or whatever it is. Um, uh, if I'm... Um, maybe it's a... Trying to stick with the theme of like music and radio. Maybe it's a, it's your favourite radio show, but it's got a guest host who's uh, trying to seem a little more cool than they are. So, someone standing in, doing it slightly wrong. So even though it's your, you know, you, it's a show you like, like the their. They're trying, you know, they're trying to seem cooler. They're going to play a weird prog rock or jazz record that doesn't suit the show at one point. They, they'd, learn, they'd learn their mistake by the end, but, uh, you know, damage is done. Yeah, it's like early on in someone's DJing career where they're, st- they're stepping in for other people, not they haven't got their own slot. Yeah, it's just kind of they're finding their feet, and they might become good, mm-hmm. but at this stage, it's still a bit. Oh, you try, you too try hard. There's things that don't work. So yeah, you're right. I mean, it's a similar vibe where it's problems, but not altogether bad. 
Harvey, yourself, do you have one? I think it is just the 1970s in general, where there's like lots of good stuff happened, but it was always just this every now and again someone would say something misogynistic or a bit racist or you know something just generally a bit appropriate inappropriate and you're a bit like oh that's a shame yeah. why have you done that and then you realize oh it's the 1970s oh don't get nana on that topic she's a bit oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh her dated views oh she said colored again <laughs> <laughs> is, is it with crime films because usually it's an anti-hero you could sort of put up with it because you're like oh you scamp and your ways but because we were supposed to properly root for Dave in this one I was a bit like mm, can I though mm. I think you're supposed to empathise you're not necessarily rooting for him so much as the tension and uncomfortableness of it is uh, is there to experience. But still, I just I just didn't like. Not that I didn't empathise, but I just feel like too much of it was like up to a certain point. He was getting what he deserved. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, it's not and a... then it went too far. Yeah, of course. I mean, also it's like huge, huge on cringe and tension, which. Is always a bit fuck. I mean, why would I put myself through that? I, I really like the film Misery, which this has similarities to, and I think I never want to put on Misery. I mean, the clues in the name, it's going to be, mm-hmm. you know, James Khan suffering for hours, being hobbled and tortured. And it's just, oh gosh, no. Can I? No, I don't know. But I, I, I do. I have watched Misery more than once, so. That's good. It's good anyway. Um, so I, I was very tempted to do a metaphor about food, <laughs> and I was like, "Don't do that, Rich." I just there was a scene where she's making. She's like, "Oh, I'm gonna make you a lovely fucking corned beef potato salad with a dill, <laughs> with a dill pickle, the whole thing." Like, it's like fucking so shit, mate. <laughs> and she's like this horrible fucking corned beef salad with it with dill. What are you fucking talking about? <laughs> I think she does. She phones up and says, "Oh, I couldn't get combi in the end. I got fucking pastrami." I'm like, "Fuck are we!" <laughs> like, good. I'm glad you couldn't get corned beef. Also, you couldn't get corned beef. I don't know. It's maybe maybe this is too much corned beef chat for a metaphor. I'm not going to use. <laughs> just, just remember that moment where she's talking about the food she's going to cook, and I was just like, Ew, "No thanks." Which, <laughs> oh, no thanks could have been my metaphor. But hey, uh, we've had you hostage long enough. We're going to cut you free and um, punch you out of a window off a cliff. (laughs) So you can't listen to another pot. No, please come back. Please survive your cliff fall and come back next time for another chat about another film with us. Kisses. Love you. Bye. Goodbye. Bye. Play Wait and Bleed for me. (laughs) <laughs> play play one of those lovely Slipknot songs for me. I want to headbang and think of you.